Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Betsy, there's something wrong with Kayon. What's wrong, Wolfie? A role building transfers executive dashboards. As a result, the project manager proactively improves our granular, reliable, growing, and compliant segmentation. She's pointing at the animal crackers as if she wants one. Is that it, Wolfie? Do you want an animal cracker? Controlling should build a solution-oriented, focused, aligned, and interactive idiosyncrasy. The clients efficiently right-size a quality assurance using our systematized, cutting-edge strategic staircases. Go get Greg. What is it? Listen to her. Our hyper-hybrid onboarding process structures a compelling customer centricity. A business-led pillar prioritizes promising brand pyramids. Our wide-ranging innovations generate nimble roles and responsibilities. Oh, my God. She's been infected with corporate... I told all of you to use the sanitizers. Seal off this department. Nobody from the sixth floor gets down here. We're going to Code Brown. Repeat, we're going to Code Brown. A thought leader quickly enables our well-planned performance across our portfolio. What? Solutions-based differentiators embraces blended approaches, while responsiveness and branding strategy target the brand manager. Damn it. She's got it, too. Lydia, I need you to lock them in the bathroom. We can't take the chance of this spreading. The human resources proactively structure the value-added quality management systems by thinking outside of the box. We're all going to die. Robots and apes will rule the planet. Introduce the show. A sizable dotted line incentivizes the gatekeeper. So it's time to differentiate a vertical energy. And now he uses measure and cross-fertilization to inspire his chief client relationship officer... Colin McEnroe. Yeah, we've had a little problem here with that. So uh, that's a little bit more what we're going to be dealing with in the final segment of the show, that particular way in which corporations and consultants to corporations, usually in a quest to sound smarter than they actually are, begin inventing words and usages and twisting grammar around and using nouns as verbs and verbs as nouns. We'll get to all that. We're not talking about that right now. We're, We're sort of really going to be talking about, initially anyway, the need for a new word, where a new word might come from. So uh, first of all, let me tell you who's on the show. Uh, we have an all-star lineup. I mean, we really do here. Lizzie Skernick is the author of uh, That Should Be a Word, based on her New York Times Magazine column of the past. Peter Sokolowski, a regular guest here with us, lexicographer and editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster, and uh, joining us also uh, from uh, the West Coast, Jeffrey Nunberg, uh, a linguist at UC Berkeley School of Information, chair emeritus of the Usage Panel for the American Heritage Dictionary. You hear him a lot on Fresh Air, and he's the author of The Ascent of the A-Word, uh, which we probably won't be talking about that much today. Um, and But I'm going to quickly just tell a story from last night, all right? Um, because it, it just sort of, um, it, it, I got a, a Lizzie Skernick word at, for it anyway, which is, so, so last night I'm down at the Long Wharf Theater um, watching the amazing Audra McDonald sing. And, you know, it's kind of a fashionable New Haven crowd. I'm from Hartford. I'm insecure. But I kind of had this black jeans and I had this kind of tuxedo-y looking shirt, but it's sort of an informal shirt that I was wearing untucked. And I thought, I looked pretty cool, you know. I'm walking around at, this, at the party before Audra McDonald and I'm thinking, I look pretty fly. And uh, so this woman comes up to me. She's a very fashionable-looking woman, and she catches my eye, and she kind of beckons me, and I go over to her. She goes over to me, and she says, uh, 
Now, do you have a restaurant or is it just the catering? Um, <laughs> that was so not the mistake I wanted somebody to make. But um, there may be many Lizzie Skir- Skirnick words for this, but I feel as though my need to tell this story now, this story of a fashion fail, Lizzie Skirnick, is kind of ostentatious. Yes, maybe. I feel like you were denigrated, though. Yeah. Well, I was denigrated. But now, explain ostentatious. Explain, explain th- this kind of word for us. Oh, ostentatious is really showing off your hardships. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so um, I think you need to tell us sort of a little bit more about this project. So basically what you, what you did in this column and, and with this book is there, there are things that need words, right? Yes. Yes. There are these new things in our culture or there are these little, uh, you know, inter, interwoven behaviors that we have. And so what I've done is try to fill those in and get a sense of what our modern world is doing. But, you know, by creating sort of versions of the words we have or, you know, smushes and portmanteau of the words we have, but not completely made up words. And um, and so you, you make these words and, you, and then you kind of push them out of the nest to, to see if they fly. H- have any of them really taken wings? H- have you seen uh, – or taken wing, I guess one would say. Uh, have you seen one of your words – I mean, obviously the thrill would be in an informal, unplanned context to have a word of yours repeated back to you by someone who didn't know you coined it. Has that happened yet? No, that's that's ne- <laughs> that's never happened. Although, you know, generally people like one word and another person hates the word. You mm-hmm. know, my um, <clears throat> draft or birth, which is to bring your children, a child that's been brought to a bar. You know, my publicist thought that was the funniest word in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some reviewer was like, there are some stupid words <laughs> like draft or birth. <laughs> Um, but also I think, you know, my words are really to play with language. Some of the words that we really use, you know, something like mansplain or manspread, they're not really word play, but they do really fill a need. And I think those are the ones that sort of catch on in active conversation. Um, I, I want to talk to Peter and to Jeff Nunberg about this. So, um, Peter, I mean, assuming that Lizzie doesn't think words up, where do new words come from? <laughs> well, new words come from all of us, not just Lizzie. And in that, in that case, uh, we're all equal. That is to say, a dictionary editor has no more power than any other person for creating a word uh, because that's not how dictionaries work. We don't, uh, we don't uh, create words ourselves and put them in. We wait uh, and see which words have caught on. And she had some great examples. Mansplain and manspreading. If you uh, observe social media at all, those are two very popular terms that I would say are likely to be included in dictionaries in the future. The word clickbait was just added to our unabridged dictionary online. And that's another good example. These are portmanteau words. Obviously, they're easy to form, but they are names for phenomena that are real. And therefore, uh, because they're useful and they're easy to to understand, um, they spread very quickly. We have three criteria for putting a word in a dictionary. First, widespread usage has to be used by many people in many places. Second is sustained usage, so over a period of time. And finally, meaningful usage. And by that, we mean a word that is generally accepted to mean the same thing. So, for example, a word like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which we all know as a word, but we don't agree upon as uh, something that carries meaning. It doesn't really mean anything except a long word that's fun to say. 
Um, Jeffrey Nunberg, one of the, th- uh, the analogies you use is to, to coffee, uh, dripping versus percolating. Uh, help us out with that. Yeah, well, there, there are words that, uh, that, that, that enter the language by the drip method. That is to say, uh, it's kind of trickle-down lexicography. They are coined by the media uh, or people like the media, press agents and uh, journalists and so on. And they, uh, they work their way down into the language. Not that far, usually. It's hard to think of media creations that have actually become part of, uh, of everyday speech compared to the number of them that are being churned out every day. And then there are the percolated ones that begin in uh, everyday speech and, and, and slang and, and, and work their way up. And they, they tend to be different kinds of words. The, uh, the portmanteau words that Lizzie was talking about, uh, for example, there are thousands of these coined every year, uh, some as jokes, uh, some, uh, some as... Uh, uh, part of the business slang you were talking about, and some of them do work their way into the language coopetition and that sort of thing, but most of them are are, are kind of stunt words, uh, and uh, sometimes the dictionaries pick them up because it's uh, as 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 uh, Peter will be able to uh, acknowledge they they they're they're very good for getting uh, media features about the new words you have in the dictionary, but um, they generally don't last very long. You know, I was uh, trying to think of an example of exactly what you're talking about. One that came to my mind, um, and, and Lizzie, I'm sure you saw this in a lot of places, um, uh, the, the word normcore was introduced, I think, last year or the year before, and it basically describes, well, actually, basically describes the way I dress, um, which is to say... I just learned that word, actually. Oh, really? And my friend had to show me, oh, God, yeah, I learned it like a week ago, and I was like... Like, oh, so these people are just dressing like I did in 1987. Right. I I dressed the way you dressed in 1987. And and unfortunately, (laughs) the way I dressed in 1987. And so norm core is, I I don't even know how to exactly to explain it, but it's certainly dressing in a way that indicates very little regards to one's fashion choices and kind of like um, a tourist or something, you know. It's just, um, so, but, but Peter, you know, to Jeff's point, it seems as though, that's an example. I mean, I remember reading about it in, I think, New York Magazine, uh, and then reading it about it. In a, there was a flurry of other articles about it, but you, but it was a percolated term, right? It was a term that somebody tried to introduce, and it's uh, the question is open about whether it can get kind of the street value right. that, that that Jeffrey Nunberg is talking about. Sure, and because it's, I mean, this you're talking about sort of being cool by. Not trying too hard, I guess, is one of the, one or of the or things. not being cool by not trying hard enough. Maybe that maybe, maybe that's true, um, and yeah, it could be percolated. But the thing is, with uh, and uh, you know, with social media, we, we all uh, can be um, we can all be sort of journalists. In other words, we can maybe have a combination of, of Jeff's drip method and the percolated method because if you're you may ha- have uh, a, a great idea uh, but you're not a journalist and it spreads quickly on, on Twitter or Facebook or something and so it, it, it's moving faster than ever. I will say that with, you know, when we add new words it's absolutely true that we hear about the fancy ones or the or the uh, the ones from pop culture but there's also of course, uh, you know, the dictionary is a big book and it's full of very boring words and a lot of them uh, are really important, uh, and if we don't keep up with them, we fall behind. And so, for example, we just added info, infographic, net neutrality, and palliative care. They're not so fun to talk about, but they're important parts of uh, the culture and the lexicon. Um, so uh, we have to sort of get into that whole discussion also, sort of descriptive versus prescriptive. And so, um, Lizzie, I suppose we have to make sure there are no gramandos among us. Tell us what a gramando is. A gramando is uh, someone who aggressively monitors your use of the English language. 
Although I just I just thought of a word for everyone being a reporter, which is sort of a grown word, but journalist. A journalist, because <laughs> because we're, we all join up. Yeah. Um, so these are words they just come to you. So um, so Jeffrey Nunberg, you know, you could be accused of being a little bit of a gramando. You uh, monitor the use of the English language. It's and so. One of the questions, you know, in an environment like this one where partly because of the digital revolution and, and maybe for other reasons, too, there is kind of um, a need for new words a lot of the time and sudden coinages of new words and then ways uh, of circulating them that are kind of non-canonical, right? There are all these just people out here shooting words around on the Internet and trying to get them get them adopted. Does that make you worry that sort of the, 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 the lexicon and the, the canonical lexicon is just either going to die or, or, or wither? No, 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 not at all. I, I think people are coining many, many more new words than they ever did. They're being circulated more efficiently than ever before. And, and, and as Peter says, the line between public and private, which, which used to be pretty, pretty strict, uh, has been eroded uh, by, by all the media that, that, that merged the two. So uh, you see lots and lots more words going into, uh, into at least temporary circulation. But, but the, the, the average half-life of a, of, of a new word is also decreased uh, w- with time. So a lot of the words that uh, dictionaries announce there uh, with, with great fanfare they're including – uh, probably won't live as long as your hamster does. <laughs> All right. So uh, I feel as though there's a, a, a skernic. And then co- meaning nothing about your hamster. I'm yeah, I know. <laughs> but there, I feel like there's a skernic coinage coming in there that's sort of some kind of uh, – it has the word hamster in it somewhere. Uh, all right. So um, – uh, by the way, if, as we go along here, if you want to call in, uh, don't call in to complain about the fact that the people in your office say conversate uh, or something like that, because we've done those shows before and we know you're angry and we're, you're angry about maybe in the third and final segment, we could, there could be a little bit of that. But we're not really talking about that right now. But we are talking about sort of new words or the need for new words. So I was asking on social media about this and I, there were some interesting suggestions. And Peter, to your point that often, you know, a simpler word, a less flashy word can either get into the language, you know, in, 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 it maybe isn't as clever or witty or smart as, as a Lizzie Skernick um, uh, coinage, but, but, you know, might seep in there. I think there's also some real meat and potatoes words that don't exist. But maybe I'm wrong, and I'll ask all three of you about this. Someone wrote, please come up with a word for that person in your life after 50 when you are not married, not boyfriend or partner or significant other. And then this person has written, please. And, and, and I know exactly what this person means, you know, which is that, I mean, I'm over six. I'm 60 and I am in a relationship and I'm not married. And I feel pretty stupid calling that person my girlfriend. And, and, and significant other sounds clunky. And uh, Charles Osgood years ago tried Postle Q, person of opposite <laughs> sex sharing living quarters or whatever that's an acronym <laughs> for. But I mean, so, so Peter, am I missing something? Is, is there – does that word exist? It doesn't to my knowledge and I agree with you. There are holes in – uh, every language's uh, expression. That's that's a that's a that's a real fact, and it is odd to hear a word like boyfriend or girlfriend referring to an adult or even an older person. And so I agree with you that there are always holes, but uh, the fact is we don't always uh, fill them. For example, um, we have trouble w- in English with the. Um, with a, a non-gendered pronoun, you know, his or her, uh, we can't refer to a singular person uh, without referring to a gender. And that's uh, caused a lot of trouble. Uh, but through the entire history of the language, they has been used uh, as, as a kind of convenient solution. And it's more elegant than some if, as opposed to saying his or her, for example, or he or she. And, um, and so that's one of, the, one of the holes that remains in English that we have not yet been able to fill. Um, it's in the sense of... 
everybody should admit that they took their baby to the bar. Exactly, yeah. Uh, the epicene pronoun, the epicene pronoun, yeah. So, Jeffrey Nunberg, is there sort of a, um, a linguist's theory about how – well, about why a word doesn't emerge. I mean, that would seem to be kind of a useful word, particularly as society uh, changes. There are more people who are in relationships who, who are not married to one another. Um, you know, does anybody have a theory about uh, about the absence of something that should exist? Well, I, I think it's interesting that these words aren't adopted. I don't think it's by uh, – now, sometimes it is purely by accident. I don't know why we don't have a word prepone hmm. that means the opposite of postpone. It just makes so much sense <laughs> that you have to say the movie meeting's been moved up or mm-hmm. something like that. That's just weird. But in the case of a word for various kinds of, of uh, partners and so on, I think the fact that we don't have a word uh, uh, reflects a certain – Uncertainty. Uh, it's almost as if we 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 enjoy the the the, uh, the 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 absence of a word and the need to uh, to look for uh, paraphrases and circumlocutions to express those notions. Maybe because those social roles are changing so rapidly. All right. We actually sent uh, two of our outstanding interns, Alex Dubin and Hallie St. Germain, out into the street uh, to ask them about that feeling that there's of, of something that there's no word for. So we'll be Vox Two right here. Do you ever feel something there's no word to explain? Oh my god, like going through childbirth, there's like no word to describe that. (laughs) (laughs) The language that we have today to describe globalization and global trends is probably insufficient for some of the challenges that we're facing as a country. Yeah, like the awkwardness of coming up with something on the spot. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. That's talk word. Talk That's word? Talk word. You're, you already had talk that word. one. And, and Lizzie, did yeah, you, and in the amount of time that you've had, have you come up with the word for the person that you're with who, I always say that it's like, you know, this Pequot Native American term, the person that I'm with that I'm not married mm-hmm. to. But is there actually a nice Lizzie Skernickism? Um, no, but I thought of one while we're talking, um, which is just the person who you're sort of married to just because you live with them. And so for the man, that would be groomy. But I don't know what it would be for the wife yet. I'm working on That's it. That's the portmanteau. All right. Um, uh, we also have a call coming in here from Frances in Greenwich. Uh, I think she has a fairly good question. Hi, Frances. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. As an old person, I would love to replace the word elderly with my very proper word, but it sounds better to my ears. I'd love to circulate it. Well, and the yeah. word is olderly. Olderly. I don't know that that really solves the problem <laughs> somehow. Um, well, it feels better, and the people I've suggested it to smile and think it's okay. Yeah, you know, you want a word that suggests snow on the roof but fire in the furnace. Uh, and I don't <laughs> think it's uh, it's quite there yet. But Jeffrey Nunberg, you know, one of the things we're talking about here, too, is words don't exist in a vacuum. They bump up against certain social walls. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking for a different word to describe, say, a generation of people over 70 or whatever that, that she's talking about right now, I mean, there's a lot of people who are, there's, there are stakeholders, right? There are organizations, they call themselves certain things. There are there are people who really are going to care about whether that word is the kind of word they want applied to them. Well, I think that's true, particularly when you're when you're dealing with these social categories. Um, the, the, the absence of a the, 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 the need for uh, euphemisms for old goes back just about forever. Nobody's happy with just saying the old. Uh, and uh, there are organizations that are built around elderly and older Americans and so on that, that then would have to change their names. But but I think it really has to do with, with uh, a kind of uh, uh, social reluctance 
uh, almost to uh, to say things for what they are. I mean, to 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 give things to to name things with the words that describe what they actually are. Yeah, in in that sense, you could make an argument for replacing elderly with old. You know, I right, mean, right. <laughs> there's no. I mean, old means old. Right. right. The elder is a comparative, and older Americans is a comparative, and seniors is a euphemism, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, and uh, on the other end, you have people using words like uh, creakies and crumblies and, uh, and uh, slang words for old people. But, but the old uh, is a word that's charged with all kinds of, uh, of meanings that make people very uncomfortable. Peter, you know, one thing that's happening here, too, is that, and it's probably right there in Francis's call, is that this big, huge pig inside the python generation of highly self-conscious people who've been written about and talked about all of their lives and have written about themselves and talked about their lives since they could, um, the baby boom generation, they're getting older now. And I assume generations in particular, and probably maybe this one in particular, they drive language. Oh, absolutely, and especially it has to be said, medical terminology. Um, and so the new the new terms that are uh, being added to the dictionary, um, things like neurofeedback that has just been added, but th- there there have to be many others. I know there have been in the last decade, especially they're following the baby boom, just as the entire commercial life of America has followed the baby boom uh, as they grew up and now grow older. It's absolutely true. Um, and I want to mention to Jeff that it, you you your your fingers on the pulse of of the English language and other cultures who speak English have different reflexes because prepone is used very commonly in Indian English. Mm-hmm. And I heard it used fluently in India when I was there. And uh, it's, a, it's a useful term. I totally agree with uh, Jeff. And I think it's only a matter of time before it makes its way over to uh, American English. Well, somebody actually requested a word for the sip of coffee you take after you've taken the last sip of coffee. When you bring the cup to your lips to drink and it's gone already, every damn time there must be a word for that last missing sip of coffee. <laughs> There's a word for the sip before the last sip, etc. Um, and, and so, I mean, in Jeff, to Jeffrey Nunberg's point, maybe this sh- should be called... I have a word You've for that. You've got it? What is it, way. Lizzie? What is it? I have two words. Um, two. She's got well, two already. I have two. Well, that one is brufal. Yeah. Um, when, oh, brutal. And, you're sad when your coffee's over. Yeah, okay. That's you're good. sad when your coffee's over, or you just brew it. But also, I, d- <laughs> I did have the word for giving birth, because I actually did give birth while I was writing the book, you know, not during the writing, but while I was writing it. And that is pacifier, but the last four words are F-I-R-E. Uh, <laughs> and you not... men can't judge that. No, we can't. Because you don't know. <laughs> we, cannot, we can't tell you it's great, and we can't tell you it's inadequate. We just have no idea. We're completely agnostic. But, you know, Jeffrey Nunberg, it seems to be another thing that could be going on there with the last sip of coffee and then the sip of coffee that's not there after the last sip of coffee. You know, we have the word penultimate. We don't have the word postultimate. At least I don't think we do. Well, and, after the last is... <laughs> Is the ultimate, right? Yeah. Well, no, the ultimate's uh, the last. So this is post-ultimate. It's the post-ultimate. It's, it's, it's the same as when you go up a flight of stairs and think there's one more stair than there actually is. I like that. It, it, and it, 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 what Lizzie does and what people have done, Barbara Walraff used to do this, days, but it goes back to Time magazine. It actually goes back to the, to, the, you know, to the Renaissance. People were coming up with words, often blends of the sort that, that Lizzie produces, um, to describe things that uh, suddenly emerged in the culture that seemed as if they needed a name. Uh, uh, in the 17th century, 16th century, they, 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 they talked about uh, um, uh, 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 philosophers, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, navigators were, were people who, uh, who claimed uh, false geographic discoveries and so on. <laughs> so this goes back a long time, and in each case, there's a kind of Seinfeld, Seinfeld feeling to it where, where you're pointing out 
some regularity, some feature of culture that everybody's experienced, but that hasn't been drawn to 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 to, to common experience, to common knowledge, and and that's what what Lizzie's words do, I think. All right, we're going to grab a quick break. Uh, we're, when we come back, we're going to be very on fleek, and we're also going to try to explain to you what that could conceivably mean. Bowling, macadamia vestibule, pina colada managua. Velcro, escargot, malarkey, Pacadillo, Glockenstein. So we're back. Uh, we're talking to Lizzie Skernick, whose new book is That Should Be a Word, a language lover's guide to uh, chorgasms, poverty, brattling, and 250 other much-needed w- terms for the modern world. Peter Sokolowski is with us, lexicographer and editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster. Jeffrey Nunberg, a linguist at UC Berkeley School of Information, uh, regular contributor to NPR's Fresh Air, which is on right before us, uh, and the author most recently, or maybe most recently, of at least sort of penultimately, uh, of uh, The Ascent of the A-Word. And so um, I want to go to this this uh, set of tape that we have, but before we do this, just so I don't forget, Peter, last Last week, we were doing uh, another Bitsy Kaplan show that involved misfortune, and we spent one whole segment on schadenfreude. Mm. Now, there's an interesting – and somebody actually today in the prep for the, this show said, well, I'd like a word for schadenfreude that's easier to spell and pronounce. <laughs> um, but this is an example of there not really being the English word and just a, a, a word from another language just winning and winning so sure. decisively that – but I don't know. How does that happen? Well, you know, we say we borrow words from other languages. That's not quite accurate because we never give them back, and that's one thing. And in in, in a sort of a more, uh, you know, sort of uh, different kind of example, just so you can think about how languages work, think of a word like uh, like Peloton, uh, which is a group of bicycle riders, which mm. we borrowed from French because of the Tour de France. However, we borrowed that word 300 years ago to mean a group of people, a group of men, uh, and it came out as platoon. So the fact is the same single French word uh, came into English twice, and we sort of mangled it the first time around. The second time around, we kept its spelling as we have with schadenfreude. And so that's how it happens. We, we borrow a word. It, uh, it fi- falls into a certain niche in the language, and it stays there. All right. So um, we also recently did a show about David Letterman. And David Letterman used to have this segment, which I really loved, called Is This Anything? Um, And Is This Anything is sort of an ultimate question for lexicographers and linguists. Is this anything? Absolutely. So so, uh, we were – we also – when Alex Dubin and Hallie St. Germain were out on the street – uh, there was a, a term that came up that I personally had never heard, but all of our interns knew it. Uh, So let's – first of all, let's hear that tape. What's your favorite new word? I like chillax. I think chilling and relaxing is like a great combination. FOMO. It means, uh, I think it's fear of missing out. Fleek. Being on top of your game, like being 100% at all times. Like you have to be fleek. I'm such an old fart that new words don't fit into my vocabulary. I do pick up new things from my iPhone, so an app for this and an app for that. I like the word ah. <laughs> so there, there's a nice word. Well, uh, in the middle of all that, you heard this term fleek or on fleek. Um, and so it turned out that all of our interns knew this word. Some of them knew it only as something that they would use ironically. So it's a word that had currency for about 14 seconds. And then if you were in college instead of in high school, you would use it to sort of make fun of the way people in high school talk. Uh, but this came up with John Stewart recently. So uh, let's hear that clip, too. But fine if she wants the city to burn. <laughs> Who am I? I'm just a simple governor with the executive authority to provide a standing army of reservists. But I guess calling them out would not be uh, on fleek. 
as the uh, as the young people. They, you, you swore that that's a thing. You swore that on fleek was a thing. They swore to me. I said on fleek, and they said no, that's a thing. And I was like, all right, so. So Jeffrey Nunberg, this this is kind of a linguist and, and lexicographer moment, maybe more of an anxiety moment for Peter Sokolowski <laughs> because uh, he and Marion Wester really have to make a call about something like this, but not an unusual thing. Th- something that's out there in the oral culture, the oral culture is also now the digital culture. It takes no time whatsoever for somebody to, to type in something that they've just said. Um, so how do linguists make a call like this? I mean, you know, it's something that people kind of know about, but not well enough so that John Stewart can and get either applause or a laugh out of it. Um, you know, how do you evaluate something like this? Well, I think the, the very idea of making a call is, is an old-fashioned one. Uh, this, this still comes from the idea that once a word goes into the dictionary, uh, it's been uh, accorded an official welcome in the language, and it has an official status and so on. And that hasn't been – it was never really true, uh, but it was a useful fiction until, uh, I think, 1961 would be the year I'd, I'd, I'd say it ended. So that, uh, you know, they can put fleek in. They can take it out. Uh, it's around. It's out there. It's used a lot, almost always, as you say, in, in air quotes. Uh, but uh, it, it, putting it in or out doesn't, doesn't change its status. It's this word that appeared in a six-second vine and uh, caught on and, and was circulated, and, and uh, why not put it in there? Ooh, he knows the whole on fleek story. That's kind of <laughs> sure. scary. He, knew, he knows about the vine. So, Peter, what does that word have to do to earn its stripes? I mean, well, first of all, it's been the subject of not one but two lengthy blog posts at our unabridged website, and in fact, uh, the, the, the woman in question, the woman who said it in that vine, uh, corresponded via email with my colleague Emily Brewster. And uh, and answered some questions about it, which is kind of fun because you know we almost have as it's very rare to know the uh, sort of the person who coins a term, uh, but you know she did say that she meant it to mean something like perfectly done or just right, you know, or on point, you know, very um, correct, um, and it's really taken off. And it you know every you know slang moves quickly and it changes fast, as we all know. Um, there are certain words like uh, the word cool, uh, my friend Dave. David uh, Skinner has written about uh, the fact that this is a word that has always been cool. It was cool in the 50s and is still cool today. But a lot of words sound uh, dated. Um, and uh, they were cool in the 70s, for example, and are no longer cool today. So, you know, the, the, the fashion in language is just like fashion in clothing. So, uh, so Lizzie, uh, you're in the business of making up words, not mastering other people's words. Were you, were you hip to on fleek? Um, yes, I was. Well, sorry. I actually have two thoughts about it. First of all, for your intern that wanted the other schadenfreude, that's joy fail. Joy fail. Um, (laughs) Joy (laughs) fail. That's it. And (laughs) thank you. And I, this is what I loved about on fleek because when I heard it, I sort of thought of, you know, en vogue Mm -hmm. and I thought of chic and I thought of just sort of fleek, like how you flick your hand when you're really, really cool. And so that's one of those words to me that sort of – it just suggests so many things that we have a sound for. And even though it doesn't mean anything, 
it's kind of like, you know, it, it's fun for us to say automatically. And so I also was like, well, now I'm going to say on fleek all the time. Although it feels now, now it feels as though the on should be spelled E-N. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was. No. I thought it was spelled E-N and that it was F-L-I-Q-U-E. I, well, I had no idea. Yeah, no, I, at least not in the hashtag. But um, <laughs> all right. So here's Gay in New Haven with a comment or question. Hi, Gay. You're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking me. I just wanted to tell you about a word that my daughter came up with when she was, I guess, in her junior year of high school and having to read uh, Charles Dickens, who, you know, got paid by the word Mm -hmm. for what he wrote. And she came up with circumloquacious, Mm. Hmm. which for people who have verbal diarrhea trying to get around not actually coming to the point, it's perfect. So it's basically the adjective of circumlocution. Yeah, there's the word logaria, of course, yes. uh, which is sort of similar, um, you know, sort of on the model of diarrhea, mm. um, but with words. <laughs> the, um, Lizzie, we should just say a little bit more about uh, what you do in your book, because one of, the, one of the, I mean, Peter kind of alluded to this before. There are, there's just sort of realities in life. Life is changing very fast. The digital revolution is an incredible driver of change. So there is kind of a necessity for a word like clickbait. I think that was one of the ones that you mentioned, Peter. Or screen grab would be another mm-hmm. one. I mean, you, you kind of have to have a word for that. What you've done is sort of also look at people's actual living condition, conditions uh, and, and working conditions and, and, ta- and, and try to come up with words that do express common experiences. So you maybe run us uh, through a few of these like poverty and, and cubicle and stuff. Give us, give us a few of those. Well, uh, so poverty is a job with more status than salary. <laughs> um, and um, the one that people really seem to like it's, is fidgetal. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that is that it was one of my layered words so that it has fidget and digital. But I looked at it later and it also has digit, you know, like your finger, but also like binary code. And so um, cubicle is one, I, you know, with C-U-L-L, that's when you fire people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the one I love again for the, for the lady who wanted childbirth, my favorite one is birthy, B-A, uh, B-E-A-R-T-H-Y, which is to have sort of a natural birth experience. (laughs) You know, um, I was not very birthy. (laughs) So, you know, Jeffrey Nunberg, there's also, there's kind of a politics to, I mean, as Orwell proved, there's a politics to all aspects of language, but there's a politics to who comes up with words, uh, particularly words that define and characterize a subgroup. And one of the ones that I thought about getting ready for uh, today's show is anti-vaxxer. Okay, it's usually spelled with two X's too. Anti-vaxxer for people who, for one reason or other, do not want to vaccinate their children because they have health concerns or they've read this or that study. And that's a word that comes from without instead of from within, right? I mean, if if that word, if a word like that becomes the word for what you are, you've kind of lost an important linguistic battle, no? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, there's there, there are these there are these battles over words, um, particularly since the '60s when we we hit on this idea of linguistic self determination that groups should have a right to name themselves uh, uh, and and to decide what they shouldn't be called. Um, these, these have been big issues, and you look at issues like um, uh, abortion or, um, uh, in particular, immigration, where you've got competing words, none of which really uh, manage to, 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 to capture the, 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 the whole field. So, you know, whether you say illegal aliens or illegal immigrants or um, uh, 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 undocumented and so on, 
th- those all commit you to to a point of view. Uh, gay and homosexual were were in in that position for a while, and now gay is really won out. It's the default word. If somebody says, speaks of the the homosexual lifestyle or a homosexual agenda, you know exactly what they think about. For example, same sex marriage. Mm. And Peter, I also assume. That, I mean, he just made me think of something else, which is that uh, kind of famously in the most recent State of the Union address, President Obama not only used um, bisexual and lesbian, mm. both for the first time in a State of the Union address, but also transgender, mm-hmm. you know, a word which is newer anyway than, say, transsexual or transvestite. And I would assume that's kind of, uh, that makes a kind of ticking noise in the world of, uh, of a lexicographer. It sure does. I happen to know that that word is being drafted as we speak, essentially, the, at least this week, um, as, we, as we revise the unabridged dictionary. But, you know, there are also, uh, I, I, I can think of two quick comments. There are also words that are common words that are hiding in plain sight. Um, a word like thing in the, in the way that um, the way that John Stewart just used it is that a thing right. uh, and that is not defined as far as I know in that particular sense in any dictionary so it 's sitting right there in front of uh, in front of us, and so we have to catch up and and use it and I love the title of of lizzie 's book, which is that should be a word. I think one of the most powerful reflexes for adults to look up words is the question, is that a word? Is that in the dictionary and uh, we had some evidence of that during the election uh, of two thousand and twelve when um, Joe Biden had a, had the debate with Paul Ryan and used the word malarkey. Mm-hmm. And malarkey became the single most looked up word on a single day during the election cycle. And I think it was because people were simply checking, is that really a word? <laughs> right. That was a word that was probably about to die, too, from lack yes, of usage. And he, possibly. He just, he just put the, uh, the paddles right on it. Um, if, if I can add something there, I think Peter's hit on something important because dictionaries in general and the media are much better at seizing on uh, genuinely new words like twerk and, mm. and so on than at the changed senses of old words, uh, as with thing uh, or slur. I, it, it strikes me there is no dictionary I know of that has a definition of slur to mean a, a word that insults a, a racial or ethnic group uh, uh, in virtue of the membership in that group. Merriam-Webster mm. doesn't have it. The OED doesn't have it. The American Heritage doesn't have it. And that's just because it, it evolved really in the 1960s out of older uses of the word, and nobody's caught on to that at, at, at this point, whereas twerk gets in there that, that, that uh, is invented on a Tuesday and gets in on, on Wednesday. No, I mean, he's absolutely right. Let me give you, in 30 seconds, two great examples. One is the word macaron, which is the kind of coconut cookie, mm. macaroon, uh, is the is the uh, other way of saying it, but it has also meant that kind of nice the the Parisian kind the, uh, right. the 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 sandwich cookie. We've just finally added that one after a hundred years of that kind of dessert. But also um, in the eleventh collegiate, for the first time, we had a new sense of the indefinite article a or a, meaning uh, the, the in this in the sense a triumphant Ms. Jones greeted her supporters. So that meaning a meaning uh, distinguishing the person from their usual or former or hypothetical condition had never been isolated before. So that's the, the nitty-gritty of lexicography is seeing the language up close and, and sometimes a lot uh, later than we might like. We've got to go to a break here, but before we do, I mean, Lizzie, one example of um, the kind of thing that Jeffrey's talking about, I think, is um, uh, the repurposing of a word that happens seamlessly, too, is the word spam. I mean, spam mm. was a brand name, right? It was like this disgusting yeah. stuff you buy in a can. And then, I mean, right. really, almost effortlessly, it became this other thing. Right. And why? You know, but I I love that. I love words like spam or like smoothie, where it's sort of like this. this, There's no particular reason that we should use this word for this, but we automatically know that that's the word we need. All right. Yes, it is the, the – what did Mark Twain say? The difference between the fire – I can't remember it. Somebody, <laughs> somebody will come up with it. All right. We have to take a quick break anyway. It doesn't make any difference. We'll be back after this. Well, salty, cranium, velcro, velocity.
Varsity Phylum Geranium Calico Cackle Alpaca Snack Erie Canal Zulu Pseudo Plato Varicose Potato Periodontal Pesticide Platypus Terry Cloth Donkey Sycophant Frigate Milwaukee Millard Fillmore Fang Meringue Millard Fillmore Fang Meringue The key people who empowered the large-scale, siloed, and analytics-based calibration for today's show are Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our onboarding solution targets were Anna Geismar, Katie McAuliffe, and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill reimagines a powerful social sphere for us at WNPR Colin. The top-down mindsets of Greg, Betsy, and Lydia Brown were featured in the introduction. An aligned, compelling workflow for playing the part of Bill Curry was impacted by our corporate vice director of strategic planning. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff differentiating their go-to market collaborative flexibilities, visit our website, wnpr.org. And now... Back to calling. Yes, these announcements have made no sense whatsoever, but that's partly because they're in corporate speak. We're going to talk a little bit about that in this segment. So, uh, and we're going to add uh, one more guest to the conversation. But before we do, so Jeffrey Nunberg, you know, Orwell in his uh, essay on politics in the English language says, uh, I wish I could quote it exactly, but he, he says when when you hear words that or phrases that are used um, inappropriately in, in a kind of nonsensical way, it's a good indication that something abominable is happening, you know. And so, I mean, he would have understood right away why collateral damage would be a, a term for people getting killed who are were not the actual target of the weapon. Um, but um, I feel like there's another thing that happens, too, which is that and you hear it in the corporate speak that um, when there isn't that much to say, when there isn't a penetrating and fresh insight, when there isn't any new substance or when there's a fear that there isn't any new substance, one of the things I think people resort to is just this twisting around of the language to suggest that something impressive is going on. I think that's true, but I think the interesting thing about corporate speech is that it's, it's language that everybody, and I mean everybody, feels superior to. Uh, so we hear this language, we say, oh, those people are being pretentious or empty, but everybody thinks that. Uh, uh, people uh, post uh, uh, Scott Adams Dilbert cartoons on the walls of their cubicles. Scott Adams designs... Uh, uh, material for uh, corporate HR departments, management laughs at the language, everybody laughs at the language, uh, and that's really what makes it effective, that we can feel outside it, even as we use it, and the fact that we think it's ridiculous doesn't make it any less effective than, than if, we, if we took it absolutely seriously. So Orwell's picture of a world in which people use this language unthinkingly is not the way, the way, way things work out. Actually, we use it with great irony, and it doesn't matter. It's like a school song. It doesn't matter if it's stupid. You sing along anyway. Um, also joining us is Kristen Comforo, an assistant professor of communication at the University of Hartford. Um, I'm going to let you react to what Jeffrey Nunberg just said, but, I mean, it does seem like there's no slowing the tide of this. No amount of ridicule, mockery, or resistance seems to make any difference. Absolutely. I, I think the, uh, the phrase resistance is futile is probably something that resonates, uh, you know, quite well uh, in, the, in the office. I mean, you're just kind of caught up in this kind of communication pattern. Um, it is interesting to think of how we kind of are introspective about it and kind of throw it back on itself in almost this kind of satirical uh, kind of way. 
you know, when people are taking it a little too seriously, you know, you sometimes uh, kind of have to wonder, um, you know, where they stand within, you know, this particular communication moment, you know, if they really know their stuff or not, because that's really what, you know, some of this jargon is doing in terms of creating the, the ins and the outs and who gets it and who doesn't. Um, and it is, is quite an interesting cultural pattern that we see. Well, it d- seems to me that um, one of the things that, that I noticed, Peter, and I don't know whether Merriam-Webster, they, you probably do have to track this, is um, one of the things that's done in these situations is the repurposing of a word so, uh, so that it, it exits its usual part of speech and enters another mm-hmm. one. So nouns is verbs, verbs is nouns. That's mm-hmm. what I'm really trying to say. So mm-hmm. suddenly the ask, right. oh, the sure. solve. Sure. Um, you know, the, so these are verbs that have suddenly turned into nouns, right? Yeah, f- we call it function shift, and essentially at this point, all verbs can be nouns. You know, there's, there's no the, the 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 gates are broken, and uh, and uh, you know the they can sound kind of uh, new, and they can sound annoying. You know, language changes just fast enough that we notice, mm-hmm. and usually we object to those changes that we do notice. So, um, impactful uh, is not one that I love myself. I don't use it myself, uh, but you know it. It's something that we hear quite a lot. Um, we had a wonderful, lovely, terrific guest on last week on a show. I won't say who it was, who used scenario as a transitive verb. He said, well, yeah, they didn't scenario this situation. Well, and I- the new one for me is surface, surface. We have to surface that on the website. And this is used uh, you know, by, by people paid many times more than me um, to make uh, websites look good and look pretty and be functional. And I'm, uh, I'm still surprised by it. But I under- you know what? I understand it, and it's useful, and it's fast, and, it, and everyone in the room understands it. I don't understand. Now, I, I, I'm in a little delicate position, uh, Peter. Let me just say I have a friend who works at a company where they have a, mission, a new mission statement come up, by, come up that was dreamed up for them by consultants that uh, says that part of the mission is to surface all sides of the issue without judgment. And I honestly don't know what surface means in that context. That's interesting. When, in the context of websites, I understand it's to make visible and make, make you know, put it on the surface. It's a kind of, uh, you know, almost a literal uh, understanding. That one I sort of sort of get. It's a little foggy to me too, though. Jeff, um, I feel you, like they they need to use the uh, the term own it, right? They need yes. to make it ownable uh, <laughs> yeah, rather yeah. than surface. You know, bring it down to your core or, or bake it in, uh, if mm-hmm. you will. Oh, I hate all I those jargon. Yeah, go ahead. Lizzie. I think it's float all ideas, maybe because when I <laughs> like, yeah. I think they just mean float all ideas. Well, obviously, I think we, if something. Coming up from the deep. Yeah, if we don't have consensus on this, there's something wrong here. Well, so Jeffrey Nunberg, you know, um, Peter just said the gates are broken. And you said earlier on that there was something old-fashioned about making the call. Who's going to make the call? I mean, is is that just the case? I mean, do we have to just sort of crumple into a a heap of genial agnosticism about this and and just say, well, okay, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to say, it's fine? No, no, not at all. I, I think the um, uh, people have much more uh, respect for the dictionary than, frankly, the dictionary deserves nowadays as an as a, as a, as a, as a, a, a institution that validates. Peter words. can hear you. Um, uh, the, 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 the time was when, you know, it's in the dictionary right. uh, conferred a certain status uh, on a word as reflecting the opinion of elite, uh, of elite usage and, 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 and literary style and, and so on. And that's not true anymore. Anything gets into the dictionary. It should, uh, given the opening to popular culture and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the, the, the role of the media. So a dictionary should put anything in there. We still have a responsibility 
to decide that such and such is not a word you want to use in an op-ed in Absolutely. the New York Times or uh, in, in writing a serious book, but it, it can be used in, uh, in uh, casual speech, that such and such is a piece of corporate jargon uh, that has no place in my vocabulary. Those are decisions everybody has to make. You just can't look to this institution in Springfield or uh, Boston or, or, uh, or, or, or Oxford uh, to make that decision for you. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I, the, the, the fact is there is such a thing as standard English. Uh, and grammar represents the rules of a language, but usage is the manners of a language. And there are there is lots of usage of advice in the dictionary that tells you when and when not to use a word. There is such a thing as standard English. It's not a superior form of English, but it is a privileged form of the language. And if we want to exercise those privileges, that is to say, if we want to go to graduate school or get a job in a in a serious profession, uh, we have to acknowledge those rules. And that's where that's where uh, some arbitration has to happen. Lizzie, you're going to get the last word on this show, but I'm wondering, I mean, in the midst of all that conversation, and I seem to be the most prescriptive person sitting here, but um, do you ever worry, I mean, that one of these words might be absorbed into the English language, but then sort of make curmudgeons on the New York Times copy desk really unhappy? I mean, these are colorful, wonderful words in many sense, in many cases, but, you know, to some people, they're going to be, oh, no, not a word like that. I hate that word. Um, I just ignore poopy pants like that in all areas of my life. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> poopy pants, by the way, is a word we, you know, that caught on very yeah, easily. Yeah. Uh, well, everybody understands what that one is, as opposed to surface, anyway. Everybody understands what that means. <laughs> Peter is poopy pants in the Merriam Webster. Uh, <laughs> not, not yet. We'll take a citation. <laughs> yeah, so the gates are broken, so you can throw your poopy pants right through them, and they'll hit, they'll hit poor Peter. He'll be standing there. All right, we have to stop here. I would love to keep going, but thanks to Lizzie Skernick, her book is That Should Be a Word. Peter Sokolowski, lexicographer, editor-at-large for Merriam-Webster. Jeffrey Nunberg, linguist at UC Berkeley School of Information. We stole him from Terry Gross today. He's the author of Ascent of the A-Word. Kristen Comforo, assistant professor of communication at University of Hartford. Gotta go. Make a pop, streamline, think we'll send a box. Average vocabulary increase, your small salary, you know. It's kind of scary, buzzwords, so necessary. Average vocabulary increase, your small salary, you know. It's kind of scary, buzzwords, so at the end of the day, we need to take a holistic approach to functional training in the wheelhouse of beta transparency so we can calibrate expectations and collaborate in the virtualization of real-time social bookmarking and workflow of our ROI. That makes sense. Let's get it done. Thank you for your hard work and thoughtful research, Kion. Say what?